This is Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. You've seen Chef Ryan Duffy on Spike TV's Bar Rescue, NBC's Today Show, and opening bars and restaurants all over the world. Now he's sharing his stories, his friends, and some tips of the trade he's learned along the way. Prepare yourself to get Duffified. This is Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. All righty, good morning. It's Friday. Friday morning means Duffified Live Day, and uh, I want to welcome everybody here. I hope you all have had just an awesome week. I like the fact that I get to spend a little bit of time with you guys on a Friday morning. I have been getting some great emails from people talking about the last couple of weeks of shows. Um, you know, in regards to uh, Jim Baglica from uh, from up there in Boston and uh, uh, Daniel Harrington and all those guys. So it's been really kind of cool to uh, to have some conversations with you guys about that stuff and to go forward from there. We have uh, a pretty cool show this week. I'm kind of stoked about it. Um, we've got some neat, uh, a neat guest on that I'm going to talk about in just a couple of minutes. But uh, I am uh, just back from Africa. Uh, I was in Africa over in Djibouti and I was over in uh, Bahrain, which is over in the Middle East and Isa and all that good stuff. Uh, cooking for the troops with my buddies from the mess lords um, had a pretty awesome uh, kind of 10 day run all the way through with what we were doing. It was kind of cool to be out there. And, uh, you know, it. it, it First off, the military, I've talked about it in the past, my, my kind of respect and um, the, the revere that I hold for military, for uniform, for the whole nine yards. Um, it's something that, uh, that I don't know why I never did it. I don't know why I never got involved in the military. Um, I, I guess it just wasn't as big during the time frame of me growing up um, to get involved. I mean, it wasn't something it was like heavy recruiting or any of that. I mean, this was the eighties, you know, I mean, it was, I graduated high school in 89. So, um, to, to kind of have that military background at that point, it just wasn't really big. Um, which is super weird because I've always, like I said, had a great respect, um, for the military and, and anybody who's in it. It doesn't matter why you go in. It's a choice that you're making that, um, you know, is, is the, you could, you could die. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. You're protecting your, your, you're watching over our country, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. And if you think about it, the, the, the idea of military is kind of, kind of odd, especially in this day and age, because of the fact that, you know, you're taking 18 year old kids. I mean, think about the 18 year old kids right now compared to 18 year old kids 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the 18 year old child didn't have the same demeanor that we do now, you know, between, uh, you know, they call them snowflakes and, and all that stuff. I, I mean, it's just a different world. So I think to have that idea of 18 years old and getting into the military and having somebody over top of you telling you what to do every single moment during that basic training portion and the rigidity of a, of a, of a boot camp and then the rigidity of a military timeline, whether it's four years or eight years, whatever it is that you're going to do, there's a lot that goes into that. But think about the fact that – think about that today where we are taking children and we're putting them into, and they are, even though the idea of an adult starts at the age of 18, that's what they say. Like at the age of 18, you're now an adult. You can be charged. You can do all the stuff, you know, you can vote. 
Those are big decisions. Well, now we're taking kids that are 18 years old that are a little bit softer around the edges, shall we say. And it's something that that I've always wanted to kind of find out more about. So um, I'm going to be doing, I'm I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to get some interviews going with some military. That's something that I really want to do. So I'm going to make sure that I get a couple military in, whether it be high up or new enlisted or whatever it is. I want to get some people on here. Even if I did a couple of interviews while I was in Africa of some uh, enlisted, of some officers. I want to see what I can, I want to see what I come up with after some, I get some of this footage back from, from some of the stuff that I did. So, you know, and then maybe share that with you guys so you guys can hear because I want to know why people, why people enlist, whether it's for the future, planning for the future, whether it's a country thing, are they running from something? Are they looking for guidance? What is the reasoning behind it? Um, I've talked to my daughter about doing it. I know that my friend, Michelle, uh, you know, I always talk about her at the end of the shows from Techno Solution. Her daughter just joined. Um, she signed up for eight years. I mean, that's a that's a commitment, man. I mean, that's a big, big deal. Think about being 18 years old and knowing what you're going to be doing for the next eight years. Full blown. Some kids have no idea what they're going to do when they go into college. But these kids are going in and joining the military and and creating a career, creating a life moving forward. And the perks of, of, of being involved in the military are pretty big as well. You know, I mean, there's signing bonuses if you're signing on for a big year. Um, I'm going to dig into this a little bit more um, once I go through some of the stuff that I get back from Africa. I, I want to really dig in a little bit more and find out, find out why. So we're going to do a whole episode, I think, at some point just about, and that'll be in the next couple of weeks, about some of the military and, and what's going on out there. So we'll see what happens. Why does somebody join the Marines over the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Coast Guard? Why? Like, why join Air National Guard? Um, you know, I mean, why? What, what is, what's your decision process to figure out which one to do? Is it who's approaching you at that moment? Um, I want to know why. So, um, but but with that, again, I just want to say thank you to the boys from the Mess Lords, um, everybody who was out there, um, you know, from Navy Entertainment and MWR and all that you guys do to make our soldiers and sailors and airmen and seamen and and all that stuff that are out there uh, feel like feel like they're loved and feel like they have um, a little bit more than just a military world that they live in because. Uh, you know, Navy Entertainment brings in a tremendous amount of talent from all over the world to travel all over the world and to bring a little bit of light, a little bit of joy, um, a, a little bit of a break into what can otherwise be a little bit of a monotonous world of wake up regimented, workout regimented, go to your, classifi- your classified job, whatever that job might be. Um, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of moving parts that go into that. So, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and Navy Entertainment uh, brings in this talent. They bring in chefs like myself and Panini Pete and, 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 and Stretch and Nick Liberato and Johnny Brava and all these guys that are out there that we get to hop on to these, these bases, these installations. And we get to share a little bit of home with you guys. You know, we try to cook some cool stuff. We try to do some fun things. This round, I did some ribs. We did some really cool cheesy mashed potatoes and we did a really awesome meatloaf. Uh, with a uh, with a really nice porter gravy that goes over top of it, and so we're uh, we, we get on the bases and we get to cook and we get to hang out and talk and and meet and experience and have conversations with with COs and and culinary specialists and kids and moms and 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 you know I mean I've met 
Uh, I've met kids that whose parents are in the military who still keep in contact with me, um, which is kind of cool because I met, you know, I met this girl in Guam. She was probably 10 at the time and on a rare occasion I might get an email from her. Just let me know what's going on or stuff like that. And so those are some of the kind of cool things. And plus we get to do some cool stuff while we're out there. You know, I mean, we get to be on the base and and see what happens on Guantanamo Bay or uh, Naval Station Rota or Great Lakes Naval Station or Siganella or uh, Suda Bay um, or getting over into England to Alkenberry and Crowton on the Air Force bases. Um, uh, the Royal bases as well. So there's some really neat stuff out there. And, and I have been um, just honored, man, just honored to be a part of a group called the mess Lords um, where we get to travel all over the world and we get to cook for our troops and uh, you know, the thank yous that come through and the look on some of these people's faces. And I always want to know where people are from, um, you know, and, 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 you know, if, if, if I was in that city recently, I let them know, man, Hey, I was down in Dallas a couple of weeks ago and I went here, I had this, I had that, you know, just a little conversation, something about being home for them and, and to find out what they're doing. And, you know, there's not a lot of information that you can get out of these guys and girls that are out on these bases because some of the stuff that they do is classified. So you don't ask a lot of questions, but you can talk to them about where they're from and what their you know, families and, and all that. Um, I've received emails from, family members thanking me for being on base and cooking for these guys and taking pictures with them. So something so, uh, uh, something that, that is, is so small, you know, like cooking for somebody to me that, 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 that makes somebody happy is, is one of the reasons why I do what I do. And it's really kind of, I'm a big fan of it. So, uh, so anyway, thanks to the military. And also by the way, um, MWR stands for morale, well, uh, welfare and, and, um, recreation and MWR is on all these bases. And they're the ones that are putting together a lot of the, the programs and, they're the ones that have the gyms and put the movies up. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that these guys have to do on these guys and girls do on bases. Um, that is not just, you know, uh, protecting our country. So they try to make it a little bit easier for them to be out there. Um, there's cafes and internet stuff that are run by MWR and there's volunteers that are work for MWR and there's employees that work for MWR as well. So our tax dollars are really at work and um, doing really, really cool stuff. Um, so, uh, so if you get a chance, uh, check out the mess Lords. Um, we're on all social media as well. Um, check out some of the pages. I'll be posting uh, up a bunch of pictures. I can't post a lot of stuff while I'm on the bases. Um, it's just kind of the rules, but, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty stoked to be able to share some of this stuff with you that I got to experience. So, uh, so that's kind of my intro for this one, guys. This is what we're going to talk about. I wanted to, to, or that's what we talked about. I wanted to get you guys kind of a little insight about what I was doing over in Africa and, um, over in the middle East and stuff like that and the travels that ensue. So I will definitely uh, do an episode about that. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited to do an episode about that. So. With that being said, um, I my next guest uh, is is actually a friend of mine. Um, he is a guy that I've known for a couple of years. Um, I, I can't tell you where we met because I, I have absolutely no idea where we met. I, I couldn't even tell you where we met. But I do know that we met. And, you know, uh, there, there's a great little meme that was out there that said friendship um, is you just kind of pick somebody and you're like, hey, I want to hang out with you. Like that's kind of the world. And that's the way that Robert was. He was a really good dude. I enjoyed talking to him. Um, when we had first met, I do remember us having like a cool conversation and then connecting from there. I remember there being a Harley involved. Um, he was a rider. Uh, and so we hopped out on the bike one day. Uh, I'm going to make fun of him and give him a lot of shit about the fact that he hasn't done that thus far. You know, we, we only got out one day and then I never saw him again. 
Uh, but we've kept in contact through the years and um, I'm kind of proud of him because it's a really neat thing to watch somebody grow and especially somebody who's an artist. Um, now, he's not an artist in the sense that he uses a, a, like a palette, like a uh, like like a paint or or something like that. His medium is booze. Um, he is a true artist with what he does. And he has had a tremendous amount of influence on the liquor board within Pennsylvania for distilling and stuff like that. So uh, in 2004, Robert and his uncle founded uh, the Philadelphia Distilling, and he's never stopped innovating. Um, his, his success enabled him to move on and establish a whiskey distillery called New Liberty Distillery in the Kensington section of Philadelphia in 2014. He's even gone abroad and become a master distiller and founder um, of Connaught Distillery in uh, Bellina, Ireland. I've never even heard of Bellina, Ireland. Um, but he has made a, a tremendous kind of move, especially in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a really weird world when it comes to booze. We still have Quaker laws. Um, you know, up until a bunch of years ago, we couldn't even sell booze on Sundays. I mean, you couldn't go to um, – so let me rephrase that. You can sell booze on Sundays. You could sell booze on Sundays. But you couldn't walk into a liquor store or a distributor and go in and buy a bottle of Jack Daniels. You know, you weren't able to do that. Um, you had to steal from your parents the way that we did when we were kids. Not that my, I don't think my parents ever had Jack Daniels around. My father was a whiskey drinker. Like my father loved a good Irish whiskey. So that was like the stuff. Yeah. And every St. Patrick's Day, we always did a shot of Jameson. That was our St. Patrick's Day with my father. Um, so, uh, so I'm just going to kind of dig and dive right into this whole thing. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, do me a favor. I would love it if you would uh, turn the radios up, put the headphones in, get the kids out of the car, get them out of the room, do whatever you have to do, sit down, get a cocktail. I really don't care. But what I want you to do is to pay attention because ladies and gentlemen, today on Duffified Live, we've got Robert Castle. Good morning, Robert Castle. Good morning, Mr. Brian Duffy. Dude, it's good to hear your voice, man. It's been a long time. That it has. And I think last time I potentially heard your voice, it was maybe thrown out by the thundering of two motorcycles down the highway. Yeah, dude, that was a long time ago, man, because you haven't been on the bike since. Come on. I've gotten on every so often, and the battery die and back and forth. I mean, it's like my... <laughs> How many... So, so we rode six, maybe seven years ago. Really? Was it that long ago? Do we really have to put the years to it? You lived in East Falls. Oh, yeah. That was a little while ago. So that was a long time ago, dude. That was a long time ago. But hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. First off, who are you and and who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so uh, Robert Castle. Um, I uh, am a master distiller um, of both the New Liberty Distillery in Philadelphia as well as the Conic Whiskey Company in Ireland. Nice. So you, how, what, what, okay, second, how do we get in touch with you if we want to? Like Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Tinder, Bumble, Grinder, whatever you want. Well, yeah, not, not so much the latter, but, um, right. yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter and Instagram just under my, under my name, Robert Castle, Robert K. Castle. Yeah. Very nice. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not always the greatest person at posting on my own social media because I post things that are like, rarely work related i'm like oh that looks cool let me put that on <laughs> are you like are you like the the sunset guy and then at the bottom it's like and the beginning of a new day began you know and the and the yearning of a new day like uh or or i or i have pictures of something that like only a geek like myself would like being like 
ooh, look at this wooden gear in this old grist mill. <laughs> <laughs> so so dude what are you so what are you doing what are you doing now yeah right now i'm bouncing my time between a lot of different stuff uh you know i started up uh the pennsylvania distillers guild so i got a lot of stuff going legislatively as well as organizing the industry on a state level um i do work on the national level legislatively for the uh, spirits industry and then i co-founder and master distiller of uh new liberty Philadelphia and Comic Whiskey in Ireland. So oh, how do you? And I got another one. Two other Go things ahead. I forgot too. I'm, uh, I'm also writing two books. One is oh. on laboratory methods of analysis for craft distillers, and the other is on gin production methods. Wow. There you go. What was the first one? Laboratory methods of analysis for craft distillers. So basically, <laughs> just um, ways for us to measure quality in a, a an easier way so to speak really but all that stuff is out there for the brewing industry right. before i got into the distilling i was a brewer um i was a shift brewer up at uh, harpoon in new england oh, and i was the go. quality assurance director for victory brewing in pennsylvania oh, i and, didn't know uh, that yeah and then uh so i remember coming from the brewing side of the industry where there's tons of this stuff out there um, on the distilling side, considering the industry is still very young in infancy as far as the craft distilling, none of this stuff is out there. Right. And some of the stuff you might find is geared for a multinational company that has a lab staff of 30. Right. Yeah, which is not the craft distillers that we're seeing now. No, no, not at all. And it's just because nobody, nobody has those resources as a startup, you know? Yeah. So are you, what, well, first off, what got you involved in, 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 in brewing? I mean, what was like, what were you, you know, in high school, were you like a big beer drinker and you're like, Hey, I want to make a, you know, I want to go get myself a carboy and I want to, I want to bang out some beer. Ah, uh, dude, I honestly, I got into the whole industry in a really weird way. Um, that doesn't make logical sense. Like it, to your point, everybody's like, Oh, you must've been really into this stuff before you got into it. First time I ever had a beer was with my grandpa Werda and I snuck it out of the cooler when I was in like my <laughs> early teens. I was like, Oh, this is horrible. Oh yeah. Right? It was like a skunk Heineken. I pulled out of a, an ice thing, you know? And, uh, I didn't, I literally did not touch a beer again until a, uh, grad, a high school graduation party at somebody's house who their parents were gone. <laughs> um, yeah, so that and then I, I didn't touch a beer after that until I got to college and the wheels were off the cart. Huh. So you didn't you didn't yeah. drink, you didn't you didn't party during high school? No, no, I was pretty lean in that regard. Oh, where'd you go to high school? Boyertown High School. Oh, okay. I didn't realize you were from yeah. up there. Nice. Yeah. All right, so so you didn't start drinking again until college, and then it was Natty Bows and uh Molson Ice. It was whatever worked of let's see pizza or beer pizza yeah. or beer yeah all of those bad choices by the way have shown as an adult on my waistline yeah i've got i've got a similar one yeah i've got a similar but um yeah so so like you know i i i ended up getting i went to college as a nuclear medicine major and got into brewing just because i was looking for a part-time job and this local brewery was just hiring somebody to be a grunt to clean kegs, scrub floors, you know, empty the spent grain bin, stuff like that. 
And I just kind of got into it because it was one of those things that I always enjoyed science. But quite frankly, my favorite part of science was lab. I hated sitting in class. I loved lab. Yeah, it was the same way. And yeah, and for me, this was something that I looked at and there was an amazing satisfaction of saying at the end of the day, oh, screw, I didn't didn't produce a PowerPoint, I didn't produce an Excel sheet. I made this thing in a glass or in a tank. And, you know, in the United States, nobody says to an 18-year-old kid, have you considered the alcohol industry as a career? Right. Right. Um, but no, it was, it was a fun thing to me and exposing to Especially, the idea of taking. Oh, oh is, what, yeah, what year yeah. was this? What year was this? Oh, this was 99 or 2000, I want to say. All right. So, so, I mean, the craft beer craze was, was, was mm-hmm. out there, but it's not. It wasn't to the level of what it is now. I mean, you know, we heard about craft beers, I think, at that point. I graduated high school in 89. So we heard about craft beers kind of at that point going into into the 90s and stuff like that. But it really wasn't. I mean, now it's like I'm going to be a brewer. I mean, you, you know, you talk to kids now and they want to be a brewer. Like it's almost the same yeah. as saying, hey, I want to be a chef or I want to be a doctor. Like that is so available to us now where there's schools, there's education, there's online classes, there's fucking YouTube. I mean, it's like you can yeah. learn pretty much anything at this point. So so for you, you're, you're absolutely right. It's nobody's going to an 18 year old and saying, hey, what do you say? You want to you want to ferment with me? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you go to other uh, parts of the world and. You know, an 18-year-old goes into something that is a food science major that's geared towards, you know, brewing, distilling, and winemaking. Um, I will say the one thing I massively lucked out on was one of my best friends in high school, Jimmy DeCindio, his dad had a local pub in town called Izzy's. And, you know, I knew his dad pretty well. I was telling, like, telling his dad one time I was getting into brewing. He goes, oh, you know, you should talk to a friend of mine. You know, and his friend happened to be the guy who was the former brewmaster for um, Kurt Leaves and Schmidt way wow. back in the day. Dude, I still drink and Schmitt's. Lived, yeah, and he lived in Bordertown. Oh, that's cool. It was totally awesome. I mean, this guy, you know, when I met him, I went over to his house, and he had a basement that had the best collection of brewing lit- technical literature I still have ever seen to this day. Wow. You know, and that's why... And sometimes people talk about like, oh, here's the craft beer craze, different styles. The technical proficiency, those old school guys, they know how to do it. I mean, well, it's all, it's all computerized. With, with oh, a lot. yeah, not only that, but even, yeah, they know how to take now. Here is this high level scientific theory. Let me work it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was, that was. They might have made fizzy yellow beer, but it was delicious. <laughs> right. Dude, I still I still throw back some Schmitz and some Schlitz and Schaefer and stuff like that when I go to uh when I go to what is the name? Roach and O'Brien's in Bryn Mawr. They have oh, yeah? a full like old school like sliding glass door, like the doors that are twelve or fourteen inches high and they've got it's just dirty, it's gray, it's brown, it's just nastiness. You open it up and you just smell like old hops and yeast on the bottom of it and broken bottles and but it but they have schlitz and all that stuff in a can. I, I don't see that stuff anywhere else. It's kind of a cool little bar if you ever get a chance to head up there. But go on a Friday night, ask for Timmy McLeod. Um so, so you're hanging out. So you meet this guy and you're looking at, at the library and then are your wheels turning at that point? Like, this is something that I kind of want to do. 
Oh, I, before then, I already was like, this is really interesting, but where do I get information, right? And this guy was so cool. He was like, look, you can come over here and look through stuff whenever you want, but you're not allowed to take anything out of the room. And okay. Like, well, can I take it to go get a photocopy? He's like, no. <laughs> and, and, and you don't have a phone yet to so just start snapping away. So there you go. Yeah, no. Yeah. No, so this was definitely like, okay, I show up with an old school notepad and I bullet point write articles. You know, I'm like, oh, anything I can. Yeah. So it was really that the experience that guy gave me was really my entry level into how to take my science knowledge I had from college and nuclear medicine and truly apply it to um, the brewing industry. Yeah, that was my, my first exposure to it. And it really got me so much deeper into the industry. Did you, did you ever, did you ever brew with him? No, I never did. Wow. Nope. Yeah. That'd be like coming over to my house and me being like, yo, yo, go downstairs. I got all those cookbooks and, uh, why don't you order a pizza? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a master in any way, but you know, I mean, it's just kind of funny that you're, you're hanging out with a brewer who did so much and he's just, and he's just offering knowledge you know, as opposed to like practicum. Hey, I'll, 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 I took it like a sponge, man. It was fantastic. So I I loved it. It was great. So now you graduate from college, you have a degree in nuclear medicine and you have a notebook filled of brewer's notes. What do you do? Pretty much. So I was working uh, at the place I was at in college. I was an assistant at this little brew pub. Eventually, the guy who was doing the stuff um, had some health issues and left, and they let they promoted me to be the head brewer. It was called River City Ale Works in Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh. Um, yeah. And uh, so I took that job, and it was great because it gave me a lot of creative freedom, but I was the, uh, the only fish in the fishbowl. And looking at it and wanting to do more in, in my career, I took a demotion in position and went to work for Harpoon up in New England. Okay. They had just, just acquired the, uh, Cat- the Catamount Brewing Facility in Windsor, Vermont. And uh, it was their kind of, their expansion. They bought this, you know, old regional brewery and made it their own. And I will say that was great for me. It was a struggle in some ways. Um, and it was great for me in others. Like the one thing I will say personally, I could only do it a year because I was in my early twenties in rural Windsor, Vermont, where I knew nobody. So hiking trees are awesome to a point when you're like, I need a human being. Yeah. Where, (laughs) where are the boobs? Where's the boobs? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a struggle. And so guys, I'm going up, I appreciate this, Brian. So I'm I'm going up there, right? Right. And the guy's trying to give me directions on how to get to this place I'm renting. His directions were like the ultimate local, yokel, rural directions. Well, you're going to make a left at the uh, traffic light. And I'm like, oh, which one? Oh, there's only one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Go up. He's like, yeah, you want to go where the big hill is, not the small one, the big hill where the Johnson (laughs) barn burnt down a few years ago. But this is this guy's directions. You know, and this is before GPS and MapQuest right. and your phone. And you're like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah. It's like fat guy directions. I'm, Go to the McDonald's and make a oh left. Oh, my God. 
where there's used to be a K, there yeah. used to be a KFC on the right hand corner. It's now a CVS, but I think they're closed. So go right there. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're so you're living up in Vermont, and you've got you know I mean you're there for a year, and I mean Harpoon's massive, man. I mean they're a big brewer. They've got a great name. They've got good product. Yeah, it was a great thing, me because going from you know the super small scale of the brewery to a large production facility, all of a sudden a bunch of the technical things you had way more control over, and you could measure them. You know, right. like sometimes you measure some of those technical things in brewing, it's such a small number as a percentage of something. So being in a large production facility really let me, you know, take in a lot of, a lot of what was possible. And it was a fantastic learning experience I had there. But living in rural Vermont, I could only do for a year. Um, so then I took nope. a job at uh, Victor's Brewing. Now, hold on. What, so what was, what was your job? What did your job entail? while you were at Harpoon. I mean, you're, you're new. You were working at a small brewing, a small brewery. Now you get into, yep. in reality, the big dogs, you know? I mean, not even the big, I mean, they're, they're not, not a huge dog, but they're a big dog. You know, they, yeah. they play hard. So what, what, was your, what were your responsibilities while you were there? I mean, as a new brewer. Yeah, I did, I did very little in the brew house. And it was more on being a cellarman and finishing filtration. Which okay. You know, everybody goes, oh, a brewer, you're in the brew house. That's great. But, you know, when you make the same beer over and over again on a, you know, you go, okay, all right, 8.52, I turn this valve. You know, you're just throwing valves. Right. Um, working back in that other part really let you get experience in the fermentation side of things. Okay. You know, where, where you, you know, fermentation is where the alcohol is made, whether you're talking about beer, wine, or spirit. You know, there's no alcohol before it. So that's. That's always a key thing where everybody goes, oh, you know, how much alcohol are you putting out of the brew house? Yeah, well, zero. Yeah. <laughs> yep, not adding anything at all, my friend. Yeah, you know, that's, that's where you make the fermentable. So, um, it was, so it was working in that end and looking at, like, fermentation curves and how temperature affected how the beer flavor profile would develop or different other techniques. You know, when do we add this? When do we add that? How do we... How do we make the filtration better? How do we clean up some of these other flavors? I mean, there were technical proficiencies that they were just, they were a great learning experience. Yeah. Well, okay, all right. So, so for the, for the lay person who, who doesn't understand where. Well, I will say I did have one funny moment where uh, people look at wheat beers out on the market, right? And my right. dirty little secret is that to get consistency in the way it looks, most companies filter a beer and then add yeast back in. Okay. So one time I was working on a Saturday and I was filtering the beer that was called unfiltered. And the tour guide like brings people back for the hard hat tour, you know, and I'm running the filter. The guys go, Oh, what do you, uh, and the guy literally just talked about the, the, the new unfiltered beer. Right. Is that oh, Rob? You know, he's one of our brewers uh, here on Saturday, working hard, uh, filtering, uh, Bob, what do you think you're filtering? <laughs> unfiltered. Yeah, I'm filtering the unfiltered beer. <laughs> <laughs> and the secret's out. So Yeah. So in, in for the for the lay person, how how mm -hmm. is beer made? Start start me off. I mean we're 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 in no hurry here. Start me off. What do I need? What do I need to brew to to make a beer? What are the key ingredients to making a beer? 
Yeah, when you're, when you're starting with a beer, I mean, your key things, you're just looking at, you know, quality water, clean water. Okay. And does water... water- how much, how much effect does a Vermont water compared to a New York water compared to a Portland water compared to a Philadelphia water? You know, I mean, how, how much, how much impact does that have on the final product? See, this is a, a funny little part where the environmentalist of me comes out because okay. another one of the dirty secrets in all of our, in the alcohol industry is everybody filters the water. Like, right. We all we all filter the water. We take whatever the water source is, and with modern water chemistry and filtration methods, we clean it up or gear it towards what we want it to be. So you're you're taking a product um, that is natural, more or less, and then you're turning it into what you want anyway. Yeah, I mean, and that's the the way of just altering water chemistry. Like if you are somewhere where the water is really soft, you might add more calcium, magnesium, which you know, for somebody that doesn't know brewing, they would look at it and be like, oh, that's a white crud on my kitchen sink faucet, you know, right. um, to make the water harder, you know, um, or you add in a softener or in distilled spirits, you put it through a, a resin column. Okay. But um, those things you look at, it's, it's all just altering the water chemistry that influence flavor. Okay. All right. So I have to have some good quality water and then what? Mm-hmm. Malted barley. Okay. And what's the difference between a malted barley and barley? So barley itself is just coming right out of the field, raw product, so to speak. Malted right. barley, you take that raw product, and if you imagine the seed, the seed gets wet, just like uh, any of us would have taken, and I'm going to say this in air quotes, seeds in college and put them in that wet paper towel in the seed case. Right. Um, to try to grow something. Okay. You know, so you're taking the seed, the barley. And you can and talk you about, you can talk, and you can talk about weed, dude. It's good. Oh, all right. Okay, great. So when, <laughs> when the, we're, you know, we're, we're a 420-friendly we're a 420 episode. We're a 420 friendly show. Trust me. I've had everything from, from full blown smokers to chefs, to doctors, to dispensary uh, consultants on how to open. So uh, we've, we've had pretty much oh, everybody okay. on this show. <laughs> all right. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, you know, when, uh, you know, 90% of us have all tried to grow weed in a wet paper towel and a CD case in college and especially at that little sprout. That exact same process is what you're doing in malting barley. You okay. let it, it starts to partially grow, and then you stop it by drying it out and adding heat. Okay. So as a result of it, you have malted barley. Okay. What this is, it's a product that gets uh, the levels of heat you add will add flavor, but there's also enzymes that are there. And you need these enzymes to convert the starch, which is that white part you see inside the seed, right. to a simple sugar. Okay. And that simple sugar is the food for the yeast. So your entire brew house that you see when you go to a, a local uh, Iron Hill or any other brew pub, or it could be a Victory, it could be a Firestone Walker in California, it could be any, you know, any of them. That whole brew house is all about getting a raw material to basically a wort, a simple syrup. You know, not simple syrup, but yeah, simple sugar. Right. You know, and the whole reason for that is to produce something that the yeast can eat to make alcohol. But during that process, you also add in hops, which is a, a bittering agent. Hops, you know, it, you go back and it's that balance of thing that you would do in food. 
or you balance bitter and sweet. You know, it's like no matter what any of us are always making, we're balancing sweet against something else. Right. It could be sweet against oak notes in a wine, acidity. It could be bitterness. You know, we're, we're always balancing against it. And so in beer, you're talking about that relationship, balancing those, that bitter and sweet against each other in the hops and malt profile. So you have this hoppy sweet wort is what it's called, W-O-R-T. Right. And in the fermenter, you add your yeast, boom, a couple of days later, you have a fermented product that is your beer. Okay. And then, so where now, now in, in what else, I mean, what else are we adding in? Because we're, we're adjusting things for porters and pilsners and stouts and, and, you know, I mean, IPAs in the whole nine yards. So where is that coming from? Is that from, where's that coming from? So that goes into where you talk about different varieties of each. So on the beer side, you're talking about malted barley. Like you're talking about porters and stouts. So you're going to take that malted barley and the more heat you add to it, the darker the green gets. You know, you're kind of, you're caramelizing, cooking off those sugars, so to speak, but you're getting those more robust flavors. You think of in a chocolate malt uh, or a high caramel malt. Those things are resulting in those different flavor profiles and colors that you see. So that's, okay. a, that's derived from different types of malted barley and how that malted barley is treated. The, you know, balance when you talk about the pine grapefruit notes that you're getting from hops, those are from different varieties of hops. And not only the varieties, but when those varieties are used. Like I'll give an example at both a Harpoon and at Victory, we used this one type of hop that was really, really bitter, but it had an incredible floral note to it. Grapefruit floral. So even though it was such a great bittering hop, we used it later in the brew cycle where we didn't actually get much bittering from it, but we got all these great citrus grapefruit pine notes from it. Nice. That's a, a type of hop called Simco. You know, now it's a pretty common thing and tons of American microbrewers use it, but we were the kind of weirdos back in the day. You know, right. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> Did I use a lot of, I, I used a lot of raw product, you know, I mean, between malt and hops and whatnot in cooking as well. I mean, when I opened up the restaurant in Philadelphia that I opened and, you know, we used to bake our own bread and on, on premises and we used to actually take, I would take hops and I would steep it in butter and milk. And then we would actually utilize that in our, in our, in our brioche. We made a sick brioche with beer brioche. And then unfortunately my baker decided that she was making too much and she wanted more money and she wanted assistance and all that stuff. So I used to just steep the stuff. I used to steep hops and barley in, in milk or in butter and we would brush it on top of our bread. You know, I mean, it, it's, I utilize it a lot, man. I just did a grilled oyster dish at one at a new property that I just opened where I actually take ground hops and we, we dusted over top of the oysters. Um, we do some cool stuff. I also take a Vienna, uh, like a Vienna malt and I take that Vienna malt. I grind it up because it's got such a great little kind of flavor or flavor to it and a great aroma to it. And I use it for seasoning on French fries. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of cool little, you know, things that I add in that from that basic raw product. So it's fun. Well, dude, there's one thing that, uh, I'm doing a, a, uh, a variation on sour mash technique for the distillery in Ireland okay. where I'm actually adapting, like using a, uh, you know, you get that to create that starter and you're using the natural flora that's on the outside of the grain to create that starter in the uh, sour bread. Sourdough. Right. Yeah. I'm using that in Ireland 
for a sour mash malt whiskey. And really? I, so I'm, I'm, yeah. So that's actually kind of a cool, fun thing um, where I'm taking something from cooking to create my starter. That'll be what we'll uh, release every year. Small, well, two barrels every year we'll release. Wow. All right. So before we get into before we get into to the Ireland stuff, I want to talk more about some beer stuff. So you leave you leave Harpoon, and you and, and where do you end up after you leave Harpoon? You got your year there. You got your stint in. You got your education on the mass production, really, of brewing. Now, wh- now, what do you do? Then I go down to Victory in Downtown. Okay, great and place. At the time, yeah. At the time, Victory was pretty small. Um, you know, during the first year or two I was there, they went through massive expansion. You know, we had 24-hour brewing shifts. We put in a huge new brew house. Um, all of this other stuff that was just blowing up in expansion. But the great thing for me and Victory, and I still really respect them um, to this day for this, is they made a huge array of different styled products but did it very true to form. I mean, we had 37 different yeast strains at the, at the brewery that I maintained in the lab. And people go, well, why would you have all that? Can't we just use like one or two? You know, that finishing note that you get in a beer, you know, it's all about your esters from that yeast strain. So having different ones we use for different beers, you can see it. I mean, you could taste it in the beer when, because we would do a trial for stuff that was only served in the pub and be like, all right, well, Let's see, if the Prima Pills, we ferment it with this lager strain versus this lager strain, do you really notice the difference? And you would. Right. I mean, granted, maybe it's only us geeks that really saw the difference so much, but, you know, I really respected them for being a production facility that trying to stay true to form in some of the techniques and using truly varied ingredients. And what I learned from Bill and Ron in that time is something I've taken over into making whiskey years later. Hmm. That's awesome, man. I mean, I know Victory. Victory's always been pretty aggressive with stuff that they do. You know, I mean, Victory was a, a very local beer for a long time, and I've seen them grow tremendously over the last bunch of years, and 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 become a really truly quality product. Not that it wasn't originally, but they, they it's like they've got a set of balls with some of the stuff that they do. Yeah, absolutely. So, how long are you? At, how long are you at Victory? So I was at Victory then, I guess, for about three years. Yeah. And and so and they were much smaller than a than a harpoon at that point. Bigger than the place where you yeah. were prior at the what was it called? River Horse? River City Aleworth. River City Aleworth. I don't know where I got a horse from, dude. I just made that up. Um <laughs> but so now you're at Victory, and Victory's really more of a, a more of a craft a craft brewery. Than anything else, I mean, this is what year two thousand something. Yeah, somewhere in somewhere in those early two thousands. Yeah, I mean that's like aggressive because because Victory was. I, I always remember, you know, I always remember Victory as being kind of a badass brewery. Like that was one thing. I don't know if it was because of the Hop Devil. I don't know if it was because of that Prima Pills. I still can picture that green label with the hops on the front of it. Um, like, you know, I mean, I remember Victory as always being really much more of a badass brewery. They were also one that had a lot of food involved in the brewery out in Downingtown. Mm-hmm. That's Downingtown, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So you're there for three years. I mean, how much do you really get to play? Are you a brewer? Are you the brewer? You know, I mean, what is your what is your position out there at this point? Yeah, so I was the quality assurance director who reported to directly to Bill and Ron, who were okay. the founders, owners, brewmasters. Um, and it was cool because it became this. We just we started to develop a great relationship. That yeah, we always joked we would joke around and stuff like that, but we'd have great collaborative conversation. Like I can remember some of my best memories of working at Victory were on Monday nights when the restaurant was closed and there'd be one light bulb on out at that bar and myself and Ron would be sitting out there having beers by ourselves and talking for hours about recipes or technical influences and how to, you know, change the character of the product. I mean, we would geek out and I gotta say it was <laughs> awesome. It was just, you know, really riffing off each other in this fantastic way that is one of those things that now, whenever I look at an environment that I want at a distillery I'm part of, that relationship that I had with Ron is the one that I always strive now to have with employees and staff. You know, wow. that thing where you can argue, but you're arguing passionately for the same cause. Sure. And at the end of it, you go, one of, one of you goes, yeah, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. And, and, and nobody's pissed off about it. You just go, yep. You know what? We just talked to you over 45 minutes. I see your point. You're right. And yeah. nobody brings it up. as like, oh, I remember that time when uh, you were wrong and I was right. No, you just, <laughs> you just, you went at it. You dived in, you were in the foxhole together and the best product came out of the end. That's cool. Yeah. You know? So three years hanging out at Victory and, and, and I mean, that must've been amazing for you because that was really, that was really a growing point for those guys. I mean, there was a lot of stuff yeah. that was going on at that point. You know, uh, I mean, craft beers were really starting to take a really nice form um, moving forward. It wasn't all the mass stuff. And and Harpoon, I consider as a mass because that's a big brewery. You know, they produce a lot of barrels, but, but, but Victory, I just always remember like waiting to see the victory beer that was going to be coming out next. You know, that was a really cool time frame, especially because victory was really one of the bigger brewers in Philadelphia, uh, st staying out of brewery town section, but one of the bigger brewers mm -hmm. in the Philadelphia area at that point, everybody was always talking about what victory is going to be coming out. What's next. And, and that was a huge point. So to be a part of that must've just been awesome. <sighs> I mean, it's funny you say that because that was, again, another learning I took from the brewing industry over to Spirit was experimentation and keep doing something. Both companies, Victory and Harpoon, the products that are their flagships today started out as seasonal beers. Both companies. I mean, wow. Harpoon's original flagship product, I don't even think they make it anymore. It was Harpoon Ale. I think it was discontinued a few years ago. And, or, or maybe they still make a super small amount of it, but it's one of those things that on this evolution of craft spirits, I remember that in craft brewing of, Hey, doing the crazy one-offs, doing the throw the shit at the wall and see what sticks, but <laughs> you know, and not being afraid of it and being right. like, you know what might suck. We might be discounting this thing and trying to blow it out a year later, but trying it, you know, that was that part that I, my lesson learned from brewing that I, I certainly try to keep to in craft spirits is say, 
okay to go ahead. It's okay to be like a lone wolf out there. How much, so when you're developing recipes for, for this stuff and, and I'm still kind of, I'm still sticking on beer because, because I am, I mean, getting into the distilling portion with, with the booze and the, and the, and, and spirits is something I, that I'm really interested in, but you know, it, it, how are you able to look at a recipe and have the flavor in your head and know what it tastes like, you know, or are you be able, are you able to create, you know, are you able to create and go, okay, this is what it's going to taste like by doing this, or is it a lot of trial and error? There's always a thought in my head and every effort is to get to that thought. It's okay. really a thought of a taste and everything else is to get there. Yeah. You know, there's nuances along the way or other things that like I'll add in, but here is a, and my problem that I often get with that, <coughs> excuse me, um, my problem I often get with that is how do I add words to what's in my head or that I'm imagining on my tongue? <laughs> Yep. Yeah. That's that's always my problem. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you know? I do. I have the same um, thing. I have the same thing. Yeah. When yeah, I and, and the thing I'm super lucky on is right now I got a guy in Philly who he gets my weird language. <laughs> yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. Dude, they're tough to find, man. They're tough to find that world. Somebody who has that same passion that you do, and when you go, yeah, I just I'm, I kind of want it sticky. You know, what, what, yeah. what, uh, oh, oh, sticky. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. This is what we need for sticky. Those are the yeah. good guys. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So hanging out. So you're at, you're at victory for three years and then where is, where is the, cause, cause I, I kind of see going into the distilling world almost as a graduation, you know, I mean, because it's, I, I, that, that's how I see it. Like when you, when I first met you and you were talking about what you were doing, I was like, this dude's fucking smart, man. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into what you do. So, so how do you make that leap? And, and, and how did you see it as I'm asking the question, the weird way, I guess what I'm saying is how do you make that, how do you make that, that jump from, from, from brewing into distilling? Funny enough, that actually, that started in the lab for me. Um, okay. And it was, it was a guy named uh, Joe Frenzy um, from, uh, uh, what should we call it, from Yingling. And Joe was the assistant brewmaster, then became the brewmaster. And I was asking him about, hey, what is an analysis technique I can do on measuring some of our performance and our lagering processes on Prima Pill. He was like, well, here's this procedure, blah, 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 that I used to use back in the day at Throws. And remember I said earlier about the old school guys really knowing their shit? Like, oh, yeah, totally. Throws, right dude. Yeah. Is Throws even still around? I have no idea. I mean, yeah, that's why. Grandpa's yeah. favorite beer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, he broke out this thing to me and it was a, it was a distillation technique that I did in the lab to have something I could analyze. And for whatever reason, it just sparked something in my head. And then I started to look into distilling and I'm like, well, I start looking at the back of labels. And I'm like, wow, why is everything I see? You say Norwalk, Connecticut, Louisville, Kentucky, Norwalk, Connecticut, Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, and I looked at it and, you know, I had this, 
what I call a Seinfeld-esque, did you ever notice type of thing. Right. And I was hanging out with a high school buddy of mine, Jake. And I said, hey, man, did you ever notice like when you're, you know, you pick up a liquor at the store, it's only from a couple of, only from a couple of places. And so I had this crazy idea of saying, well, why is this craft culture of, you know, what you've seen in wine, what you've seen in beer, not in distilled spirits? So, you know, me and my high school buddy, we wrote up a business plan, came up with this brand idea, and then uh, decided to present it to my uncle, Andrew. And, you know, we vetted out the plan from there. And it was funny enough, we, when we started, we were one of only 40 distilleries, regardless of size, in the entire country. Wow. I'll never forget, we went to the American Distillers Conference, the first, the first, the first two. And, you know, it's like 35 people in a room. And <laughs> it was like, oh. And for the vendor expo, everybody turn your chair around and look to the other side. <laughs> it's, it's like an AA meeting instead. No longer is it a conference. Now it's an AA meeting. Yeah. And it was funny because that was the industry. I mean, you had so few people in it. And now you go to that same conference, you know, I, like we just had one in Portland. And you go to Portland or the one that was in the ACSA in Pittsburgh. And there's signs out front, you know, we had really kind of gotten to this point that you go, wow, like, you know, years later, we're, we're pretty far along. Um, and I can remember flashing back to when we were doing fundraising for Philadelphia Distilling, which was my first company. And we were going to these investors and like any investor says, okay, well, you know, what is there around you that's like what you're doing? Right. And Nothing. Like, well, there aren't there aren't any craft distilleries yet in the middle Atlantic region. You go, oh. uh, all of a sudden they're like, I don't know. You know, nobody wants to be at first, you know, it sounds super risky. Um, and so that was, that was difficult. You know, I mean, that was super, super difficult. Find people who are willing to say, Hey, believe in me on this. Because the other part that was harder about that is it's illegal to do home distilling. So right. you're pitching somebody on an idea of, Hey, I want to start a distillery. Yeah, there's none in the tri-state area. And it's illegal. Yeah, there's a lot of things we can't do. <laughs> uh, I can't give you a sample of what I'm going to make, but it's going to be real good. You're going to love it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's really a faith. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that first round of money is really coming in based on faith. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a part for me that at the time I was in my, you know, I was, what, 26, 25. And you know, the connections that, I mean, you know, any of my friends, you know, no, nobody that I was friends with at 25, 26 had money to go invest in a startup company. Right. So, you know, my business partners, Andrew and Tim, it was really their personal network and people that trusted them that were our early shareholders. Nice. Uh, fun, yeah. Funny enough, I ran into one of them the other day. I was just at like a local brew pub grabbing impromptu beer and I ran to the one guy, Patrick. Patrick happens to be a professor at uh, Penn's Business School, and oh. he was one of our early shareholders. <laughs> oh, that's cool! Nice. Yeah. So, so I mean, how do you how do you open up how do you open up a distillery in Pennsylvania with all of the crazy laws and everything that we have going on here? I mean, because you really were kind of uh, you were a leader in the industry in this area for that. Nobody was doing anything like that. 
No, you could you could either call me a leader or a crazy person. Um, well, but I mean, I mean, but I mean, seriously, think about think about all the crazy ideas that people have had through the years. Like, hey, I want a fucking light bulb. You know, I yeah. mean, so I, I, I consider you as being a leader with what you do. It's, I mean, look, I talk about you. You know, I talk about the fact that I know you. We may not hang out and, and we may not see each other as much as we would like to. But like I am I'm proud of you for what you've done. Like I loved watching the progress of you going to Harrisburg and lobbying to start making changes within the area. That was huge, dude. So there you go. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I when we first started Philadelphia Distilling, we were the first micro distillery in Pennsylvania since Prohibition. And wow. in a Quaker state. You at that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In that state. And people came on a tour and if they liked your product, you couldn't sell it to them. Um, right. So I spent a few years in two gubernatorial administrations. And the funny thing is, is my version of lobbying at the time, you know, I'm a small business owner with barely any paycheck, no resources, no connections politically in the local politics. So I had a hands-free on my phone and I had a list of every single state legislator on the house and the Senate. And when I was brewing or distilling, I would make calls. I would just make calls to them all day long for years, right. constantly pinging, pinging, pinging. And the funny thing was, is so many of them that I reached out to, they would go, well, what do you mean you can't do that? I do my, you know, annual fundraiser at my local brew pub or local winery and I, they buy stuff all the time. I was like, yeah, I can't do that. They're like, really? So <laughs> lobby the state legislator on this. And the nice thing for me is that about, I guess, two years or three years after we started Philadelphia Distilling, there were two other distilleries that had started up, um, micro guys. You know, one was out in Pittsburgh and another one was out in Bucks County. So it was th I was thrilled about it because it was no longer just just me trying to do all these calls. It was like some other people to say, Hey, look, this is more than, more than just Rob Castle. Right. Um, so I, you know, pitched the uh, state legislator, eventually got some legislation written. And when it passed, it was actually the highest percentage of yay vote of liquor legislation since prohibition. Wow. And, and, and why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, one part is I think that the practicality of saying, hey, look, I'm looking for parity of what the other two-thirds of the industry in the state can do. Right. And I will say is uh, my family settled in Pennsylvania in like 1708. So everybody that I was a single rep relative of that I knew, I knew what district they were in. And I said, here's a letter. I need you to send this to your guy. Wow. <laughs> there you go. I did, I did that with suppliers. I did that with family members, friends. Um, so I tried to find any way I could to connect to as many legislators as I could and make a um, wave. The thing that I was really, really happy about is when I originally pitched the state legislature, this, I said, look, you know, it's definitely like a field of dreams. If you build it, it will come. I said, look, allow us to do this. I promise you this will create more jobs. Um, about a month ago, I testified again before one of the house liquor committees and, and I said, Hey, by the way, Last time I sat before you, there were three of us. You know, two, three years later, there's now 82. Wow. And 82 of those distilleries and all of the staff, the full-time employed staff, at each one of them. This is where this industry has gone in a short period of time. Like, 
this is the amount of agriculture we use. Here's how many acres of product and how many tons of corn, grain, rye, barley, fruit that we use in the state now. This is the influence that this legislation has. Um, so it's been a really great thing to see Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania went from the state that you couldn't do anything in. Right. And now it's been ranked, ranked as the top legislation nationally for a microdistillate. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. And, and, so the super and, Quaker state is now the most liberal. Yeah, which is amazing, man. That's wild. Yeah. Hmm, look at that. I mean, we couldn't buy we couldn't buy booze on a Sunday out of a liquor store until what eight years ago. That is true. I mean, that was a big, big change. And with I think they started with three stores, and then they were like, "Holy shit, we just did a million dollars in sales in three stores in one day." You know, I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit, but but that's you know that's kind of what it was. So. All right. So, I mean, so now you're making big, you're making big strides. You're moving on. You've got a successful company with partners mm-hmm. and all of that with Philly distilling. And I still, you know, blue coat is still something that, that, uh, you know, I, I, oh, I know, I know the guy who made that, you know, like every time I see it behind a bar, I, I say it all the time. Oh, Robert's a buddy of mine. Like I talk about that product and even you were also involved in absinthe. You were doing absinthe prior to pretty much anybody. Yeah, we were the first people on the, we we're the second people in the country and the first on the East Coast in 95 years to make absinthe. <laughs> I fucking love you. I fucking love you. Why? Why? It was that same mentality I said that I learned from brewing and saying, let's give it a whirl. Let's try something that's a little out there. And I made, you know, one batch of it and tried it out. And what was and the name of it? Vu Carré. That's right. Actually, why don't I had said had to say that I have a bottle in my uh, that you gave me that's upstairs in my liquor cabinet. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah. So it, it was, and that was the thing behind it was just, you know, even when we did blue coat, you know, calling it American Dry Gin originated from like a, it was me and my buddy Jake. We were brainstorming on brand stuff at uh, funny enough coffee shop off South Street. Um, way back in the day. And we were sitting there and just the whole afternoon where we kind of, in a sense, whiteboarded it, you know, but went through this and I said, look, you know, there's American pale ale. There's, you know, why can't we do that with gin? And so sure. that's where we can work with the idea of blue coat of saying, Hey, let's, let's declare that out there. Let's say it's okay to not be London dry. Let's put that stack uh, that uh, flag in the ground. Yeah, And that's that part of just taking the risk and going out there a little bit and being okay to paint outside the lines once in a while. And that's, that's where that started. And so that mentality of doing that, whether it's a flavor profile, a technique, branding, a product will make, you know, I've continued that through my career and I still do it. Um, you know, I know the Sometimes the people in Ireland think I'm a little crazy on some of the things I'm doing over there, but it's that, that was, same thing where I'm like, you know. Yeah, that was one. Of, that was going to be one of my questions, actually. But you know, I mean, how is it in in a land of whiskey? I mean, that's what it is. You know, I mean, how do you how do you sell a change in a product that has been a mainstay? For so many, I mean, you know, Irish whiskey. You think whiskey, you think uh, you think Ireland. It's an automatic 
for the average person. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe not the average person, but I think that when I hear whiskey, my, my brain automatically goes to Ireland. So how do you, how do you sell a new version of whiskey in that way? I mean, where you're going to like, you're talking about the sour mash. I mean, how are you, how are you selling that product to the investors? How are you selling that product to everybody who's involved? It's some, in some regards, it's actually quite simple. You know, we talk about the raw material and technique. Same them, you know, you would do in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, I look at it and I say, you know, Irish whiskey. It's been dominated by all the liquid coming from three or four distilleries for the last three or four decades. Right. You know, you see tons and tons of Irish whiskey brands. All the liquid is made at, you know, three places. Yeah. <laughs> and so looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to make Irish whiskey but to their standards of identity and to what their definitions of what is an Irish whiskey, but I'm going to change the grain I use. I'm going to change the type of still I have, and I'm going to design my still different from all the others. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, like, one of the things we do in our Irish whiskey is we do one portion of our all-malt product that is a hearthstone product. Then the other part of it we do, uh, the other part of the distillate, I act, we actually use a technique from the rum industry that was used, that they used to call it a uh, queen share. And so we have two different methods of distillation starting from the same raw material and the same fermented product. Mm. So that's that way of saying, okay, this is how not only doing pot stills, how our pot stills are designed, but our techniques that we're taking in to get a different character and influence. You know, so that's a way of even looking at something saying, okay, I am making a malted barley based whiskey. How do I make it different? Wow. Hmm. Yeah. In the, the, the same part of that, like in the, in the U S with new Liberty by bourbon, everybody goes, Oh, bourbon, you know, I have to legally be made in Kentucky. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, and one of my biggest things is saying to people, look, the bean family who are German immigrants, Settled in Pennsylvania and made whiskey in Pennsylvania before they did down there. Oh, wow. I didn't even know know that. Bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bourbon's been made. The, uh, the old mixer distillery that used to be out, uh, out Lancaster area. Hmm. That was America's oldest distillery that had made bourbon for, you know, what? 250 years or something crazy. Wow. Huge, huge number. And, um, probably more like 200. I don't think it was 250, but either way. But right. yeah, to measure it by centuries, it's a lot. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you have this great heritage there. And people go, oh, oh, I didn't know that. You know, and even doing that, right, exact with the material. So our bloody butcher bourbon that we make at New Liberty, you know, the proportions I use of the mash bill, which are the percentage of ingredients you use in the product, are not that different from your Kentucky bourbon mash bill. But... <laughs> The, that raw material is different. So the corn, instead of being your normal yellow dense Monsanto Pioneer variety corn, it's an heirloom variety called Bloody Butcher. You oh wow! This corn, it is like a purple red color. Really? Yep, I get it from this farm up in Bucks County. Oh, and dude, that's awesome! The taste that you get on it, it's crazy fruity. You get an incredible fruitiness from the corn. Right. You know, then I got the, the Brissetto variety rye that's malted at a local malt house called Deer Creek. Um, 
So it's actually a high rye bourbon, but it has all these other flavor notes that contribute from different raw materials. Even though in that overall umbrella, yes, it's a corn, but it's a different variety of corn. One that, and the big thing that I kind of preach and while I stand on my soapbox about this, I practice it as well, is, you know, you think of how these products would have been made before the industrialization of agriculture in the United States, yeah. you know, before a lot of that stuff came into play. And these heirloom varieties are, if you're a farmer, you don't have UPS, you don't have FedEx, you don't have a car, you don't right. have a train, you don't have anything to move stuff around. So you're like, here's my, here's my thing that grows here naturally. And I just replant it every year. Yeah, you know, that's, that's it. what those old varieties were. Yeah, that's what would have been available to that guy. It's, I mean, it's one of the things that, that, that I've always liked about you is that you kind of think outside that box, you know, and, and I mean, to be a distiller and, and even a brewer, you really have to think outside the box anyway to come up with new products and do new things. So, so where is, is, so where's the bourbon being made now? Well, that's in Kensington. Yes. Yep. That's, that's awesome. A, uh, the new Liberty distillery in South Kensington. Yep. All right, I got to come down one day when I'm home. Well, you should probably Uber down because we'll do a barrel tasting. <laughs> okay. All right, good. I'm good with that. Um, you know, I quit drinking, but if I'm coming <laughs> down, I'm going to start drinking again because I love bourbon, dude. I love bourbon. I oh, have yeah. loved, I mean, for years I've loved bourbon and I actually stopped drinking it because I got, I got super fat. Cause I was drinking a lot of bourbon. I mean, you know, I mean, just with, with, I mean, and, and, you know, I wasn't a straight bourbon drinker. I was a cocktail. Like I loved a good yeah. bourbon cocktail. So no matter where I went, it was always, well, what kind of bourbon do you have? Okay, cool. Make me a cocktail. Like that was kind of the yeah. way that I live. So, you know, in bourbon, a lot of times it ends up with the simple syrups in it. It ends up with a lot of that fruitiness and the additional stuff that goes into it. So that was the stuff that just got me super fat and super unhappy. And, um, you know, and, and, and I quit drinking bourbon. So I haven't had a really good bourbon in probably three years. No, that's wrong. I lied. I was at a place out in Kansas City called Riger's. Do you know yeah. Riger's? Oh, it's, uh, I know which guy you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. His, uh, what's his last name? I can't remember. Really good dude. He revived the whole process. It was like the oldest distiller in Kansas city, whatever it was. And he revived this whole place. He's got a beautiful restaurant upstairs and an awesome speakeasy downstairs in the basement. It's a really, really cool space, man. Really, really neat place. Um, and we totally just gave him a plug while we're talking about your product. So, um, so what's, so what's going on? What's next? I mean, how, uh, what's, what's next for you? What are your next, what, what are you doing in the next year? Yeah, right now, you know, it's all about doing more innovation. In Ireland is, is a big thing for me. Um, and okay. then continue what we're doing at new Liberty. Yeah. The, uh, the other fun thing that I'm working on is, uh, a little farm distillery project. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But right now it's still, you know, when I look at raw ingredients, like I was at this farm last week in Ireland. And again, the interesting thing for me doing practice selling in another country is that right now is at the same infancy stage. The practice selling in the U S was back in like 2003 wow. where people go, Oh, well, here's what all the big guys do. This is what we must do. 
Right, or, exactly. Oh, uh, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make a, an esoteric product like that. It's not super popular. You know, and it's interesting to me to literally see life just relive itself in the exact same industry and that exact same niche part on the other side of the ocean. <laughs> and I mean, how hard is it on the other side of the ocean to get out of the Jameson Powers umbrella? You know, I mean, because that's, you know, I mean, those are the two big ones. That's what most people know when they think about an Irish whiskey. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're not talking about Oban and we're not talking about, you know, uh, the additional. What's the other? What's middle? What's the other middle? Oh, middle, Middleton. Middleton. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about high ends and you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, mass produced in certain cases. So how hard is it to take a, a, a country of culture end of history that relies so much on history with what they've done and say, hey, uh, now try this. I will say it's a it's a battle in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, in some regards, it's a battle of. You know, even when they look at production methods and they go, oh, you know, this other one over here is so much more efficient. I'm like, yeah, yeah but efficiency isn't always paid. And you can't compare, that's like comparing the, you know, uh, sales analytics of Walmart to a mom and pop candy store in my hometown. Like, right. It's apples and oranges, you know. Um, but I will say the fun thing for me over there is when I reach out to, local farmers and stuff, they don't, they don't return my phone call. They don't think I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck him. I have to, yeah, I do. I have to have the girls who work at the front tour desk call the farmer to say our master distiller is going to call you until they take me seriously. Wow. Cause otherwise it's some American with an American cell phone number calling them. They probably sure. think is a spam call. You right. know, that's um, so funny. <laughs> yeah. And it's always a funny thing because I'll go out and I'll meet these guys and they'll be like, oh, well, how much are you looking for? And I was like, well, you know, I was hoping I could get about like, you know, three tons this year. And they go, three tons? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't know if I have three bushels. And I was like, all right, well, how many years would it take you to scale up to that? They, just, <laughs> they look at me like, like, like I'm Captain Insano, you know? <laughs> sure, 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 sure. That's funny, dude. That's funny. Yeah. Um, well, dude, I'm super stoked that we, uh, that we got a chance to chat. And, uh, yeah. now that you're here a little bit more, you got to get on the bike, man. I am. I'm, I'm going to put the bike back on the trickle charge this weekend. All right, good. Yeah. Cause uh, actually in Jeff, you know, my buddy Jeff, um, he and I yeah. are, we're trying to, I'm riding out in uh, the Pacific Northwest this summer. So I'm going to go from Spokane up into Canada, cut across, cut back down into Montana and then come through Northern Idaho and stop at the hot springs and do all that stuff. Um, wow, which, that's awesome. Yeah, I did. I did a great ride last year all the way in and through Idaho and all that stuff. And it was just, I, I had to do it again. So I'm actually doing a, uh, an event, an event out there called Crave Northwest, which is a really neat food festival that they put on. It's really in its infancy, but it's a really nice festival and, and I get a Harley out of the deal. So I'm pretty happy to head out there and do it. So, um, but uh, yeah, we got it. We got it. We got to hang out, man. We got to get back together. I'm I'm gone, you know, for the next couple of weeks. But but let's uh, let's keep in touch and keep moving forward, man. Yeah, man. I feel like every time uh, one of us is in town, one of us is gone. Like uh, I'll you know I'll be like, oh look, you know, I look on uh, social media, like oh look, there's a picture of Brian's shoes on an airplane. <laughs> All right, he's gone. 
Dude, it's so funny. I, I was I had an appearance a couple of weeks ago and I started, you know, there was like like we're taking pictures and we're doing all that stuff. And this chick walks up to me and she and she like stands next to me. She holds the phone out. I totally think we're doing a selfie. And she turns the phone downward, takes the picture and posts it out and says, finally got a picture of my shoes with Chef Brian Duffy's. So I don't know. I don't know how to take that, whether or not, you know, and what direction I need to run with that. But um, it, it, it's pretty funny to think about that when people are like, oh, you got new shoes like that. People know my yeah. shoes. So, yeah, it started as a just kind of as a joke where I used to take a picture years ago. I had a I had a wonderful girlfriend years and years ago, and we used to take pictures of our feet when we would go places. And so I kind of carried that little tradition on for myself. Whenever I get on a plane or whenever I land somewhere, I always take a picture of my feet so that I know where I've been and, and kind of what I've done. So it's kind of a little spiritual weird thing. But, um, yeah, I like my shoes, man. I like them a lot. Wait, so. is that the girlfriend that I met? Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. The blonde. Yeah, yeah, it was. It 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 absolutely was because they're they're yeah, it was. So, um, well, dude, hey, do me a favor. Why don't you uh give us another give us another shout so we can find out who you are and uh you know how we can get in contact with you or or follow your travels. I mean, because you travel a lot as well, dude. Yeah, wait. Let me uh let me look up what my social media handles are here real quick, so I'd be sure to say them correctly. <laughs> I think I have it in front of me. Oh, well, that's good. At least I thought I did. All right. So on, on Instagram, I'm Robert J. Castle, C-A-S-S-E-L-L. On Twitter. As you can tell, Robert's a big social media dude, really big social media guy. Yeah, exactly. I'm you, giant. Yeah. So my Twitter is at Robert J. Castle, C-A-S-S-E-L-L as well. But yeah, I, I'm the I'm the weird person. You know, like I said, I post things that are just the funny thing is, is half of my social media that I have and I look at is one of two things. It's either to watch the people who do social media for my company to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do, right? Or on Twitter, I think I follow a ton of comedians just so I get comic relief when I'm sitting in an airport pissed off in a TSA line. Oh my god, dude! Twitter <laughs> and comedians is is one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things ever. They're awesome. Yeah. There's so many good people. Yeah. And, and, and because they are balls to the wall, they say exactly what they're thinking and what they're doing. It's a riot to watch, to, to, to even follow anymore. I love it. Oh my God. The one guy, the, uh, uh, on Instagram, the fat Jewish. Oh, he's the best. Hilarious. The best. Yeah. Him. And then there's, there's a couple of other really good ones out there. The fat Jewish is great. Um, I, fo- I don't know. I follow, I follow so many people. I don't even know who I'm communicating with anymore or who I'm reading. I just read through and laugh. So, um, yes. but I, hey, dude, thank you so much for coming out and thanks for taking time to, you know, I mean, I know you're, you're busy dude. I know we had a hard time trying to get this schedule, but I'm really glad we did. Um, so thanks so much, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Robert Castle, man, you know, not Robert Castle, man, it's Robert Castle, man. Um, uh, you know, Robert and I have been friends for a while. We don't, we don't hang out often. Every now and then there's a reach out or a text or, you know, Hey, how you doing? And that sort of stuff. And I, I've loved following him and what he's done through the years. And, and not only that, but his brain is super cool. You know, I mean, just the, the process of what he comes up with and what he does. And it's hard to really gauge or hard to get a lot of that out of a, you know, a quick 45 minute or an hour podcast. But, uh, um, you know, check out Robert and follow what he does because he's not done. You know, he made a massive, massive impact on the state of 
Pennsylvania within the distillery world. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, that, that is a really big task and that's a really big feat for him, especially in this state and in this day and age of politics and, and all the bullshit that goes along with it. So, um, kind of cool, you know, I, I, I'm really proud of Robert and, and what he's done and what he's accomplished and what he's going to continue to move forward to do. Um, so everybody do me a favor, check out Robert J Castle on Instagram and Twitter, uh, C A S S E L L. Um, he's a good egg and he's, he's a, he's a, he's a good dude. Really, really glad we were able to get him on. So, um, that's our show for this week. We're going to wrap it up, uh, just a, a, a great week and moving forward, kind of going in, I'm getting ready to head out to San Diego. I just go out and speak to the, uh, the military out there about hospitality and retention of, of your employees and your guests and exceeding the expectations that I always talk about. Um, I always get to, I also get to talk about my had and I get to talk about my nuts so my had is we had an opportunity to exceed the expectation of our guest. And this is something that if you pull into business, you're going to think about it. And it's a little bit aggressive, but pay attention to it. When you think about had, it's always an opportunity. Okay. I had an opportunity. So how do I get to that opportunity or get to, to really take that opportunity and turn it into fruition? Well, think about it. Had. You take this into your business and you, you approach it to your employees. Um, it's really simple. The H stands for Hooters. If you work for Hooters, you know what you wear. You wear the shorts and you wear the shirt. There's no questions about it. So your staff should be ready to rock and roll when they come into work. All right. Uh, a, that's American Airlines, man. Before we take off and we fly those friendly skies, we have three things that we have to do. They are rules. They are regulations. If you do not do these three things, that plane does not take off. Seat in the upright position, tray table, back up, and your seatbelt on. That means that be prepared for the things that you have to do prior to your shift. Get ready. Get your staff ready to rock and roll. And then D, Disney. Get them ready. Disney. You know what you do when you work at Disney. You have to smile. Get your staff in the right mindset. Get them set and ready to rock and roll. The other thing I talk about is my nuts. No, it's not a crazy, dirty little thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about non-negotiable, unalterable terms, systems, and standards. Years ago, there was a book that I read that was actually called Nuts, and I took that whole world of him talking about uh, what it was like in a relationship, that you stand your ground. Uh, and I'll tell you honestly that that book really kind of fucked up my relationship that I was having because I all of a sudden became kind of this male dominant and instead of a partner. Um, so I stopped listening to that. And what I did was I took those nuts of non-negotiable, unalterable terms, systems, and standards, and I put them into my own businesses. You know what you have to do when you work with me. I let you know right up front. I keep you informed uh, all the time about what it is that I want. If you go into um, an app that my assistant and I use right now in there are nuts and what they are, are my systems and standards. All I ask is that you check your email twice a day, beginning and end. It's that simple. You don't have to be on the email on email all day long. Okay. I ask that we have a conference call on Monday and Friday so that we can recap. That is what it is. When I go into restaurants, I have the same things. These are things that I want you to do every day. There is no question from it. There is no variation from it. And if you get your employees on that same exact page, then you too will have a good business and it's the way that's going to work. So uh, got to thank my three my big three for everything that they do. We got to get Jerry and Jason from radioinfluence.com out here. Check out their other podcasts, man. 
please go and check out some of the stuff that these guys produce and put together. At the same time, go to iTunes and give us a little bit of review. Go and check out the stuff that we do. Tell your friends about it. We really want to grow this show. We've got great, 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 great numbers. We're hitting big, big double digits and we're we're excited about moving that number forward. So, um, And then uh, got to talk about Maggie Gagliardi and her amazing artwork and brain and all the stuff that she does for our promo pieces for all of our guests. And then we got to thank Michelle out there at Techno Solution as well. Um, for me, I want you guys to know uh, I have a company called Duffified Experience Group, and we are a consulting firm. Um, we will help you with your restaurant. We'll help you with your business. Um, any part of it, from developing menus to educating staff to dealing with the finances and opening and closing restaurants, the whole nine yards. So look out for us. We are out there, and we're ready to come into your place. Uh, that's what I got. Uh, thank you guys so much. Another awesome episode of Duffified Live. Have a great week. Welcome to summer. Here we go. Didn't get Duffified enough? Follow Chef Brian Duffy on Facebook and on Twitter at Chef B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Look for the blue verified checkmark to get exclusive content and to see what's coming up on next week's show. This has been Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. This is a sitting ringside with David Penzer. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Ladies and gentlemen, David Arquette. I was uh, I was thrilled. I mean, literally, it's kind of like the character in the movie where, you know, I, be- I believe wrestling for, I still honestly think, you know, it's more real than, than anything. Um, so I was always sort of uh, a mark, as you'd say. I really loved uh, wrestling. I was obsessed with it. And then when this script came along... I'd known Scott Kahn for a long time, so it was kind of like this weird uh, time where something that, you know, is very close and personal to me, I'm with a, a good buddy of mine who's an actual buddy of mine, then we go on this adventure and I get to see all my heroes and travel with them and meet them, and, you know, the whole experience was just incredible for me. I loved it. It was like uh, a dream come true, really. Sitting Ringside with David Penzer can be found on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.